we have just enough GCFs remaining in the semester to finish Ephesians in a year, which is not fast, but we're going to get through it. No one ever called us fast here. Um, and we are nearing completion of the book, and we're in what's called, and I say it a lot in the first part of my sermon because it was, so, it was such a fun word to say. It's, it's called the Haus de Fell. It's German. Do we have any German students who know what it means? The Haus de Fell? No? Okay. It means house table. And so they call this portion Ephesians 5, 22 um, through 6, 9, they call it the house to fell. And the commentators have called it the house to fell because house to fell in German means the house table. And the house table, you know, when mom and dad are talking about something serious, they gather everybody around to the house table. Um, and, and what, what uh, Paul is doing here in Ephesians is he's giving us rules for Christian households. The house to fell. You, you can't say it like lackluster, like house to fell. It's like house to fell. Get some phlegm in that. Um, and uh, so we're looking at this, uh, and we're finding in this hostafel um, that who we are in Christ, so who we are in Christ dictates how we are towards each other. Who we are in Christ dictates how we are towards each other. Your primary relationship you will encounter in your life is your relationship to Christ Jesus. And that relationship with Christ, whether he's your savior or whether he's someone you reject, that relationship shapes how you live your life um, interacting with other people. We relate specifically to people. Each person, if you are a Christian, each person you come in contact with, you're interacting with through Christ. And Christ has given us specific ways in which we interact with other people. And, and I really love, as I, as I was thinking about this, um, these last few weeks we've spent this, the idea of economy, Right? In your basic economics classes here on campus, they talk about the economy and all the moving pieces that go into the economy in order to make it healthy. There needs to be um, a, a number of different part, parts, all doing specific things, all to the benefit of the whole society. And on a microcosm, that's what the church is. The church is, uh, and, and Paul has talked about that a lot in Ephesians, where all these gifts and all these talents and all these different pictures of redemption come together to give the fullest picture of Christ. In the church is the fullness of Christ, Paul says. But also, as we look at how we interact with other people outside of the church in our daily lives, we're also reflecting that Christian economy. And so far, we've looked at wives. We've looked at husbands. Tonight, as Cody just read for us, we're looking at children and parents. Next week, we're looking at bond servants and masters, or probably the closest thing we could think of today is employees and employers. In all of these relationships deal with the idea of submission and care for one another because a large portion of the Christian walk is bound in submission. And we see that before Paul gets into this, he's talking about, um, if you have your Bible in front of you, chapter 5 in my Bible is labeled as walk in love. And he's talking, how is it that we walk in love? In verse 21, before he gets into any of the roles, he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So because of Christ... Because of reverence or worship to Christ, we submit towards one another. And so that's the baseline for all of Paul's arguments. Regardless of where you are in life, out of reverence to Christ, we're submitting to one another. And so with that in mind, I just want to, uh, to pray for us. But uh, yeah, I'll just pray right now. So um, I'll get into that in a second. So Lord, we, we come before you tonight. Um, as Cody said, we need wisdom in this. Uh, for something that uh, for so many of us may seem like things that are out in the future, uh, we want to be able to master it now. Uh, the, the whole, the, the sum of scripture is truth, 
regardless of what Scripture is talking about. It is the truth. It is the authority. It has the words of life. It is the power of God and salvation. And so we want to come under that, and we want to hear from you. Um, we want, through the help of the Holy Spirit, to apply it to our own lives, to take what you have communicated through Paul. Um, and we think that it's not dead after 2,000 years um, of being written, but it is alive and it is active, it is laboring, it is relevant, it is purposeful. So we pray that you give us um, uh, the ability to apply this to our own lives today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I remember uh, watching an episode of Survivor Man once, uh, and, and he was doing his Survivor Man thing, and he got dropped off in the jungle, and then he was um, walking through, and then there, because he always have to get to like civilization, so they always go to the beaches, right? Uh, and, and between him and the beach was this huge mangrove forest. For those of you who don't know what mangrove forests are, it's this twisted web of like roots and wood and water, um, and so it's really dense and hard to get through. And um, the, the issue with it is there's not a lot of perspective when you're in it because it's just wood and light. You're, you're so uh, boxed into a bunch of um, shrubbery, I don't know, I'm not a botanist, wood, uh, roots, um, that you can't really see where you're going. And so you can act like you're going in a straight line, but after you're like crawling over and ducking under these branches, what you thought is a straight line, you could slowly end up going somewhere else. So what, what he did is he found the straightest, longest stick he could find, and he weaved it through the mangroves. And so he would duck and dive, but he'd always come back to the stick because the stick kept his mark. And when he'd reached the end of it, he'd take it and he'd stand and he'd push the stick out a little further. The stick was always his marker for his path. And as we look at these roles, wives, husbands, children's parents, uh, bond servants and masters, we need to be mindful of where we started in order to be certain of where we're heading. We need to be mindful of where we started, that stick. We need to go back because where that stick started is important. That's our bearing. If we lose where we started, we end up over here and we end up with all these isolated things. Because as Paul's looking at this, it's not like Paul's like, okay, we've had this great book on the church. We're loving it. We're looking at Christ. We're dead in our trespasses. Now, wives, I'm talking to you. Husbands, I'm talking to you. Kids, I'm talking to you. Parents, to you. Bond servants, masters. It's not disjointed. But all of this is woven together and tied to the gospel. And the gospel is where we start when we want to see how we interact with one another. And when we start on the gospel, everything else flows through it. With that in mind, I want to reread um, what Cody just read for us, our passage in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So thus far, um, as we've talked about, we looked at wives, we've looked at husbands. Those are what we've looked at right now. There is an overwhelming minority of us in here who are wives or husbands. And not everyone in here will be a wife or will be a husband. And those passages are specific. We looked at it. It's not calling all women to submit to men. It's not calling all men to lead a family. It's fathers and husbands lead your family. Wives submit to your husband. Some of you may not do that. Paul says um, in 2 Corinthians, he says, not, not all men should marry. Not all women should marry. But this passage, this is for us. This passage is the first passage of all of the roles that Paul is talking about that applies to each and every one of you. Children, all of you were born. None of us hatched. None of us were made ex nihilo, out of nothing. You didn't just 
apparate on the scene, Harry Potter style. You were born. You're a child of somebody. Your parents produced a child. You're an offspring. You're, you're here. You're present with us. So this passage is for us. But at the same time, it's also unique for us, right? Because we're in this weird, like, college stage where you have, like, all the bills grown-ups have, but none of the jobs grown-ups have. Um, and you've got all this, like, quasi-stuff. Am I a kid? Am I an adult? What's the deal here? And so talking about children can sometimes be foreign to us. We're in this weird, we're not quite children. We're not quite parents. We're not quite spouses. We're not quite, quite full grown-ups yet, and nor do we really want to see ourselves as, for, as full grown-ups. And so what I want to look at today is I want to look at this text in three ways. I want to look at this text as a child, as a parent, and as a college student. And I want us to draw points of application out of each of those things because those are things Paul is talking about here. And you still apply as a child. You are a child. You have parents. You were born. You may or may not be a parent, but you are currently a college student. So first thing we want to look at is how do we read this passage as a child? Verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So what we have here is a statement from Paul and an affirmation of Paul's statement. His statement is, children, obey obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And how does Paul back that up? Well, he goes to the Ten Commandments. I mean, he, he basically, word for word, quotes the fifth commandment. If we look at Exodus 20, verse 12, the first time the Ten Commandments are given, it says this, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that that the Lord God is giving you. And in Deuteronomy 5, Moses is kind of rehashing, revisiting the, the story of the Ten Commandments. Verse 16 says this, Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that your Lord God is giving you. And so that, that, he, he's, he's saying, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he's saying, this isn't new. The Ten Commandments talk about this. You've, you've heard this before, but did you catch the distinction in this? Because Paul kind of went one step further than the Ten Commandments, didn't you? Didn't he? Because we just read, um, honor your parents. But what did Paul just say? He says, obey your parents. Ten Commandments, it's honor And now Paul says, obey. So why would Paul go that far? I mean, Paul doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. He's not trying to like work an angle. Like if I, like when Owen's a little older, if I had the power to just like sit down and write scripture, I'm like, I'm writing obey. That makes sense for me. It's a benefit to me. It's like, Bible says it, obey me, deal with it. But Paul, Paul, Paul didn't have an agenda. He was working here. So why is he saying that? I mean, you remember when you were little and sometimes you, you just kind of twisted and just pushed things a little farther than you typically would. Like if your brother or sister is being really annoying and you go and you ask your mom, you're like, hey, Jimmy's he's being a little butt right now. Can you just tell him to stop? Um, and mom doesn't tell him to stop, right? She says, well, just go ask him to go ask him to be nice. Go ask him to stop what he's doing. And if not, just deal with it, right? How many of you have gotten that message before? Just deal with it. And so what do we do? We take that message back to little Johnny and we say, hey, mom says you need to stop. And if you don't, she's going to make you go play somewhere else. It's like we got a little bit of it, but it's like we're up in it. Is that what Paul's doing here? He's like, he's like he, God gave an inch and now he's making a mile out of it. God says honor. Paul says obey. 
No, because what Paul is actually doing here is he's fighting for authenticity. He's fighting for authenticity in the heart of the children. You see, we could feign honor, can't we? We could fake honor. I could tell you that I, that I honor soccer, that I think it's a great sport that real manly men should play. But the fact that I don't play it, I don't know about it, and I make fun of it as much as I can, shows you I really don't honor it. But, it, but if, you, if, if, like, if like all of a sudden soccer players became like athletic specimens to be feared, like if they turned into any other athlete, and they came up to me, um, and they were like, hey, like soccer, or we're going to use our muscles, um, I'd be like, you know, I love soccer. That's great. But I could say that, and I could honor them with my mouth, but my heart and my body and my presence and my view of sports does not show honor towards soccer. But when obedience is present, honor is given. When obedience is present, honor is given. Think of it this way, in the positive sense. If, if, if you've got a kid, and you see um, a dad come up, and he's like, hey, uh, Joe, it's like, go clean your room. And the kid just says, yes, dad and goes and cleans his room. That kid obeyed, and he honored the parent, right? That's easy to see. That's honoring. That's obeying. That's both of them um, tied together. But you could also have a kid like me, who um, when my mom saw Power Rangers, she was skeptical. And she was like, it's too violent. And so what she did is she wanted to prove it, like a good mom. And so she went and bought a VHS of... Power Rangers. I found the VHS. I'm like, Mom, are you sneaking Power Rangers on me here? And I'm like, let's watch this. And she's like, no, I was testing it to see if it was good. And she was going to watch it. And I'm like, well, let's watch it. And she's like, no, not until. And so I threw this big temper tantrum um, because it's Power Rangers, right? I mean, come on. Uh, and uh, my mom said, Tyler, she's like, I'm going to throw this away. I pushed my limits. She's throwing it away. Um, and, and I remember I sat on the, on the couch looking out at the, the garbage can. It was garbage day. Saw the VHS there and sat for half an hour while the garbage men came and took away my VHS. And then my mom's like, Tyler, you need to go to your room. And so in one of my moments of shining glory, I turn to my mother and I say, yes, Elvira, princess of darkness. <laughs> and I walk down the stairs. And to this day, if you ask my dad about this story, he will say, if I hadn't have walked in the house at that very moment, you would have been our first and fleeting child. <laughs> she would have killed you. But here's the thing, as rude and as, as stubborn and unruly as I was to my mother with the words, think about the irony of this. I'm called, she tells me to go to her room, and I'm insulting her as I'm going to my room. Right? I, I can say what I want, but the sheer fact that I'm acknowledging her authority, that I'm seeing that regardless of how I feel, I'm obligated to go to my room spitting insults, there was honor in that. As, as weird and as, as hurtful and as silly as it was on the surface, my obedience really showed my honor to my mom. True honor produces obedience, doesn't it? Where obedience is present, honor is given. And so that's what Paul is, is pushing on here. He says, not only are children to honor their parents, but they're to act out that honor in obedience. Obedience shows honor. And why is this such an important issue to God, right? We've seen it twice um, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Now we see it here. We also see it in Colossians. Paul talks about it. 
Why is this so important to God? Why does God care so much about children and parents that, that he stresses this honor and that he pushes it further and says, obey? Well, it's kind of, if you, t- if, if you study the Ten Commandments, you'll probably get people who say, well, the first five commandments, commands one through five, deal with how we respond to God, how we interact with God. And the second five commandments deal with how we interact with one another. Well, if you're good at counting, you know the fifth commandment is in the first five. So under that rubric, this is, this is a commandment really talking about how we interact with God. This isn't just some weird thing that people divided it, and this is kind of the, the weird uh, rule inside of it. It's not an overstated assumption, but actually this is the very words of Paul, isn't it? Look back at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And in the Lord, the, the word Lord is not Lord as in the title of God, but Lord is in Christ, Christ's position as Lord. And so it's really saying this means um, that obey your parents towards Christ. Obey your parents in a way that is representative of Christ, for Christ, towards Christ, for the glory of Christ. And you see, we always have to go back to the beginning of the stick. It always comes back here. When Paul started out talking about this great gospel, we're adopted as sons. He's not, he's, he hasn't departed from that fact. Everything is tied to it. And when we get to this, it's not children, obey your parents, for this is right. It's children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You see, to have behavior change needs to be accompanied by gospel change. Behavior change, true behavior change, needs to be in, uh, started by a gospel change. We have to go all the way back to the end of the stick to see why this is important to God. Because really, it, it, if we just stopped and read this book at face value, it's really weird that Paul's getting in all this role stuff at the end. Um, and when I initially looked at this passage, I thought I'd talk about children and parents and slaves and masters in the same sermon. It's like I deal with both of that because kind of weird, abstract things. But then I started to look at how Paul even spoke of this in the book of Ephesians. Look at this. Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Verse 17, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 3 verse 14 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. 4 verse 6, um, One God, one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. 5 verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 5 verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And then 6 verse 23, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this passage is important. This children and parents theme is important because the tone of family is extremely important to God. God has chosen to relate to us as Father. Before Adam was a father, God was a father. Before your father knew you, God knit you together in your mother's wombs. And as Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians, he knew you before the foundations of the world. And here's the thing. While God is fatherly in every aspect, 
While God is fatherly in every attribute of who he is, we are not all God's children. Paul talks about that, right? He says, you're children of evil. He says, you're children of wrath, Ephesians 2, children of sin. But, Paul comes back to family, but through the Son, through Jesus, God the Father has adopted us as sons. He has adopted us as children. So this family metaphor starts with God. And Jesus pushes it even further, right? Jesus himself says um, that if anyone is not able to hate his own family, he's not a Christian. Jesus isn't saying that all Christians hate their families, but what he's saying is that because, you're, because of the weight you see in God, your first family is your spiritual family. The most defining relationship you will ever have is your relationship with God the Father. Before you ever understand your relationship to your parents right, before you ever understand as a parent your relationship to your children right, you must understand your relationship to God. And God's children hear his voice and obey his commands. At the center of all of this stands Christ, bringing those who are not children back in to be children of the Father. And those children hear God's voice and they obey his commands. Why? Why do we obey God's commands? Why do we do that? Romans 8.28, right? You've all heard this, I'm sure, before. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, God who exhibited his love by sending his son to adopt us, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who in God's purpose he has made children, all things work together with good. This is what Paul's communicating, right? That's why he says, oh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. And then there's like an aside. He says, for this is the first commandment with a promise. Because what's the promise? That it may go well with you in the land. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, so it may go well with you in the land. You see, children are called to obey their parents because all parent relationships are based off of God's perfect model of fatherhood. You see, it's not that God created and saw what Adam and Eve did, and they're like, oh, they made a baby. Oh, and now he's dad, dad, father, is that what he's calling him? Well, I could, I'm like that. I should, I should call myself father. God created the father and mother relationship as a representation of his immense love for his children. Our lives scream the weight of the gospel. God has hardwired that into us where the sheer aspect of the most pagan atheistic marriage with kids, that is a glimpse of God's love for his children. The fact that when parents have kids, they, they, it's not like, and they just throw it out the window and like, get out of here. The fact that, that there's such a, a, a trauma over uh, nations like China and India throwing away children is because there's a connection with parents. There's a love from parents. And God asks us to obey him in faith. Right? God says, listen to me. Why? Because I work all things for good. You see, we don't have to doubt God's rules. If God says a rule, God could tell me that dirt tastes like steak and I should believe him. Because if God says it, it's true. We obey God on blind faith sometimes because we know God works all things for good. And in a general rule, the same is true with our human parents. Sin has complicated this for sure. 
Sin has, has, has hurt relationships. Sin has complicated things. But just as the Ten Commandments stated, typically children who obey and honor their parents are led into safety, not trauma. It's a general rule. There are cases that prove it wrong. But the general rule is those who obey their parents are led into safety. And this is a general rule which reflects the glory of God as Father. God the Father takes care of his children. And when children trust God the Father, it is for their good. In the same way, children obey your parents in the Lord. That means obey your parents out of an overflow of your Christian faith. Obey your parents not as a simple command to obey your parents, not as a simple command to honor your parents, but in seeing your parents as a representation of the love God had for us in bringing us into his family. For this is right. This is well-pleasing. See, it is a portion of your Christian worship to obey and honor your parents. It's something done out of the vast glory that Christ has exhibited on the cross. And not only is it part of our worship, but it's also telling of our attitude towards God. If you hate your parents, if you dishonor your parents, if you harbor disdain for your parents, at some point that will manifest itself in attitudes towards God. So that's as children. How do we look at this as parents? Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul here is specifically speaking to fathers. He says, uh, and he does this for reasons Stephen showed us last time we were here, where he says um, that, that dads are the spiritual heads of families. In saying this, it's not saying moms provoke your children to anger. Go for it. It's not saying moms don't teach your children. But what Paul is saying here is that there is a spiritual responsibility to a dad, and he will have to answer to how it is he's leading his family. There's a weight to the father role that demands our attention, both as women as we look for future husbands and future fathers, and as men as we hope to aspire to that. And Paul's words here to fathers are twofold. The first, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. There's, there's very little things given to how we should raise our children, but this is in two, the two New Testament passages that talk about parenting. This is it. Don't provoke your children to anger. It's that important. And we've discussed before that anger in itself isn't a sin. We just suck at using it not as a sin. It's hard for us. But in this sense, Paul's like, no, in this sense, this anger is something that produces sin. It's not a beneficial anger. It's not a righteous anger. It's not a holy anger. But this is an anger typically to be avoided because under this anger, when we've provoked a child to anger, we've typically provoked a child to respond in sin to make a decision fueled out of sin. So I'm a new father. I've got a 17-month-year-old son, and he's not very subtle when he's angry. He, he's, he's pretty visible with it. He just, he's mastered in the last, like, three days, like, a glare, too. Like this, like, what are you doing? Um, and uh, that's how he says it, too, in that voice. Um, but, and there are times where Owen, um, is genuinely out of his little sinful beating heart, is responding in anger. We were at the Big Dipper the other day. He wanted everybody's ice cream. He just, he wanted it. If he didn't get it, he was going to whine and he was going to kick. Um, and he just, he wanted it. That's out of his own dirty little sinful heart. Um, but there are other times where Owen responds in anger because of my sin. My neglect of him just today. Um, and I, uh, as I, I wrote this and I said in my notes, my neglect of him as I look at Twitter. <laughs> and I was sitting before I came and I was on my phone looking at Twitter and Owen came up to me with a book. And I said, not right now, oh, crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And, and so I picked him up and read a book with him, or I'm looking at Twitter, or I'm, I'm reading my own book, or I'm doing homework. Or my, my immediate ability to put off his immediate needs, because I'm big and he's small, I need food before he does, because... Um, and uh, all these things, of me being selfish, I'm provoking... Owen to anger. It sounds silly and it sounds small because he's 17 months old. I mean, what? he's not going to hold a grudge like dad didn't read me a book when I was 10 months. Um, might be different at 10. Um, but, but when I look back and I see what I'm doing, I see my selfishness as sin, it's really terrifying to think about. Because it's, it's, it's sin unfiltered. My son is responding to sin. That's what's happening. My son is seeing and responding to sin. And look at Exodus 20, 5 through 6. Look at what God says. I'm not in Exodus. Let me go there. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, the sin is another word for that, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That sounds pretty intense, right? Like it's like God, that's where we get this bad imagery of like angry Old Testament God that's not true and put it out of your mind, so maybe I should stop talking about it. Um, but this imagery of like, man, God's visiting the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Like has he got a list and he's just like, well, you, you hurt me this much, so I'm going to hurt you this much. I'm going to punish you this much. Is that what God's doing? No, because we know that's not how God works. God is loving and God is gracious. But what God is saying here, he's saying he's going to visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations because typically the way in which granddad sinned was modeled to your, the way in which great granddad sinned was modeled to your granddad. The way in which your granddad sinned was modeled to your father. The way in which your father sinned was modeled to you. Fathers and mothers your sin will be seen by your children. And if left unaddressed, they will sin in the same way. That's what he's saying here. He says, I'm visiting sins to the third and fourth generation because you people aren't dealing with it. Because sin is running rampant. It's not safe for them, nor is it safe for you to model sinful behaviors in your life. Do not provoke your children to anger. Pastor KJ at church um, deals with parents a lot, and he himself is a parent. And he, he told me this as he found out I was preaching on this, and his quote was, let this text counsel and correct you now, because it will certainly counsel and correct you as a parent. So take this text. Do not provoke your children to anger, and let it counsel you now, because it will come back and correct you as a parent. Confront your sin now. Be vigilant to look at your own sin. Expose it, see it, confess it, repent of it now. Because one day you might use it to provoke your children to anger. And you might cause your children to sin. And Jesus says, for those who cause the least of these to sin, it's best that you throw a millstone around you like a big old rock and throw yourself into the ocean. I can't imagine having the burden over my head, having this guy caused his child to sin. Sin is the most grievous offense to God. And J.C. Ryle has a great line where he says, the unfortunate thing um, is that um, sickness is contagious, health is not. Your sin is contagious, health is not. Strive to be healthy, work to be healthy, 
Seek not to provoke your children to anger by eradicating the sin in your life. But the second sense of Paul's commandment to parent is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is something um, that for the, the, the audience at the time was kind of shocking because contrary um, to culture of the time, children in the Christian faith were something to be treasured and something to be valued in a Christian culture. And in addition to that, Paul's saying um, to raise your child morally is not simply what God's commanding. He's not saying, hey, raise your child to just be good, moral, obedient citizens. What he's saying is raise your children Christianly. To, be, to raise your child Christianly, they have to encounter Christ. They need to be saved. And I'm terrified of this as I look at Owen. I'm worried that I'm going to miss an opportunity for this. I'm worried that I'm going to screw it up. And so in order to do that, I need to preach to myself the gospel daily because it's only through my pursuit of the gospel, my putting on of Christ's death and his resurrection in my heart, my death to sin, my life in him, only through a daily action of that will Owen have the faintest hope of encountering Christ in me. Owen needs to see Christ, not his dad. Robert Murray McChaney was a Scottish pastor. Um, I think he died at 32. Um, and so I look at that and I'm like, well, I'm not going to get there because <laughs> he did a lot. Um, and one of his quotes was, the greatest thing my church needs is my holiness. As I look at my family, the greatest thing my family needs is my holiness. The greatest thing my family needs is for me to own the gospel daily and teach it to them and model it for them and instruct them in it. Look at what God says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Mothers, fathers, paint the gospel in your home. When your children come to eat, feed them with it. When they go to play, fuel them with it. When they're with their friends, fill them with it. And when they go to bed, comfort them with it. Preach the gospel to your children. Model the gospel to your children. Paint it in your home. Because parents are the representatives of God the Father, we seek to live in such a way that presents and glorifies God in all that we do. From correction to cleaning, from instruction to playtime, we seek to model the perfect love of God the Father poured out through the Son for the salvation of souls. You see, the cool thing about this is God has chosen Christian families as one of the primary means of evangelism. I, will pre I preach the gospel daily in my home. I hope I do. I model it daily in my home. And if I get it right in my home, it's going to be right outside of the home. As I preach the gospel to my children, and as they are raised in it by God's grace, they become Christians. That's a huge way that God has designed evangelism to work. We make babies, and by the grace of God, we raise those babies to grow, go, and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian family is. It's a great weight in God's economy. Now, what does this mean for us here? Right, as college students, you're all sitting here, you're waiting for that collegiate application of dorm life. Um, what does this have to do with college students? I've got four quick points of application we could take from this text. The first is forgiveness. Most of us don't live with our parents anymore. Some of you do. Some of you live states. 
um, or countries away from your parents, but the fact of the matter is, is that you're still a child, and so long as your parents are alive, you're still called to honor them. You're called to give respect to your parents. It's different in terms of obedience now. Your parents, as you grow up and become adults, don't have the final say in your life but the honor and the respect is still due them. That means that some of you should probably ask for forgiveness from your parents for ways in which you've responded to them. In the past, in the present, if you're spiritual, if you're hateful, if you're rude, if you're dishonorable towards them, no matter how awful your parents were, you were ultimately being dishonorable towards God. It's ultimately a reflection of God because God is the one who sovereignly put your parents over you. It wasn't a mistake, it wasn't an oopsie, God made your parents, and God gave you to your parents. That doesn't mean you need to love how they parented, but it means you need to honor them and respect them because you respect a sovereign God who controls your family unit. It's going to be hard for some of you to go and ask for a pencil. It may, it may be foolish. It may be silly. Your parents may brush it off and be like, oh, that was years ago. But it's a great opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Why are you doing this? because I realized that my attitude towards you was reflective of my attitude towards God the Father. Additionally, some of you need to forgive your parents. I've heard so many stories in the Christian community of awful, sinful, detestable parents. Parents who have done things I would wish on no child, but oftentimes if those children don't forgive their parents, they will use their parents' sin as scapegoats for their own. My mom did this so I can do this. My dad treated me this way, so I'm allowed to act this way. I'm allowed to harbor these feelings. And while your parents can provoke you to anger, your parents can never cause you to sin. Look at what God says in James, James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Your heart is the one that caused you to sin. Your parents didn't, your relatives didn't, your circumstances didn't, your siblings didn't. Your heart caused you to sin. Your parents are not responsible for your sin, but Christ has forgiven you of that sin. Christ paid for that sin on the cross. He died for that sin so that you may forgive others. Do not be held captive by hate or disdain, but see your sin rightly See it as something that you own out of the depth and depravity of your heart that Christ came and died for as a detestable sinner and then see the cross as a call to forgiveness. Forgive your parents and preach the gospel to them through that. Secondly, some of you were raised in a Christian family. You're in the church. You're at a college group right now. Affirm your parents. Do it. Go thank your parents. What a miracle. I went to a Christian school and I've seen kids all over the spectrum. Some kids had parents who tried, some, and it just ended up that way. Some parents had, kids had parents who didn't try. But if you are in a position where you are a faithful, uh, God-loving college student, chances are your parents had something to do with it. Thank them for it. And let me tell you, it's awkward. I've done it with my dad before, and it is awkward. It's weird, and you kind of just want to like, like joke it off or something. But it's good. Man, what, what a great way. I am a beneficiary of obey your parents, I mean, it will go well with you in the land. It's gone well for me to obey my parents. It really has. And your thanksgiving to your parent is not only a thank you, but it's also, again, and it's funny how God worked these things, but because it's tied to the, to the gospel, it's an opportunity to preach the gospel to your parents. You know, I just want to thank you 
for, for, for the silent things, whether you realized or not, of presenting the gospel to me. Because you did so to me, and I'm grateful for that. You raised me in a way that God seeks to raise his children, and I'm appreciative of that. You modeled Christ for me, and that's what I needed to see most. Thirdly, prepare. Some of you are going to have children. Some of you are going to be around children. Um, So learn to kill your own sins so that you won't provoke others to do the same. Learn to not tolerate it. Learn to not be accustomed to it. Learn to hate your sin so that what is modeled in the life of your children isn't your actions in sin, but your disdain for it. Look at your selfishness right now. Pray that God will make you selfless towards your roommates, towards your girlfriends, towards your boyfriends, because we must even be more selfless when it comes to interacting with our spouses and even more selfless when it comes to interacting with our children. If you create a habit of selfishness now, it's the easiest, um, most natural way for us to sin. It will breed more and more as you grow older in life. Don't assume the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't assume it here so you won't assume it with your children. Preach it to yourself daily so that it will be preached in your home. Learn to counsel yourself through it. Encourage yourself through it. Worship yourself through it. Write it on the tablets of your heart so that by the grace of God it may be written on the foundations of your home. You see, it all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to the front end of the stick where everything that we do is done out of the overflow of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's the last point. See your, see your first family as the object of first importance. The first relationship that shapes all other relationships is the relationship we have with our Father in heaven. Are you right with him? Are you far from him? Are you adoring him? Are you thankful for him? Because we have a father of all living things who sent his true son to die so that he may make many adopted children through the sacrifice of the thing he loved the most. And as children of a redeeming God, we live rightly in right relationships with one another for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you give us foresight in our own lives. Um, We pray that you give us courage. If you are um, pushing on us through the words of Paul, um, confronting us with errors we have had towards our parents, um, errors we have in our own hearts right now towards our own sin, I pray that you give us the Holy Spirit which um, empowers us to respond rightly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that if there are people in here um, who do not see God as Father, um, Lord, this concept can sound so foreign to them, but I pray um, that you work on their hearts and you reveal yourself to them as the one who sent a son to die for their sins so that we may be adopted as sons and daughters. Lord, we give you our hands, we give you our hearts, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Lead us, guide us, sustain us. Fill us with your words. I pray so in your name. Amen.